actually, and we've even sequenced hospital rooms and walls. And what you can do is if a patient comes into the room, if you don't know their travel history, because they might be intubated, you can just sequence the virus and get a, an idea of where they possibly came from and where maybe they came from. You know, it's an inference, so it's not perfect, but, you know, the ability to look at phylogenetic and geospatial differences of these strains and clades uh, helps you discern where they came from, where they might be going. And also you want to design all your primers and probes and a lot of your vaccine development on the areas of the genome that are the most stable, so it'll be reliable for the longest. Welcome to the Illumina Genomics Podcast, where leading scientists discuss genomics research and how new discoveries are shaping our understanding of science and nature. I'm your host, Andrew Hinton, and today I'm joined by a special guest, my co-host, Candy Rogert, Senior Director of Research at Illumina. Hello, Andrew. It's my pleasure to be here today. It's great to have you. And today we are also joined by our guest, Christopher Mason from Wild Cornell Medicine to talk about his experience with development and applications and testing for SARS-CoV-2. After its discovery in China as an emerging pathogen, the genome for SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, was sequenced in the December of 2019. This sequence information was subsequently used to design diagnostic tests and develop vaccines. Some of the vaccines being used today represent the first public use of RNA-based vaccines. Although the rapid response from the scientific community was robust, and the amount of collaborations between institutions was impressive, if not unprecedented, the first few months of the COVID-19 pandemic were a time of confusion for many. We were dealing with a pathogen we had never seen before, and many countries lacked the infrastructure for an efficient response. And as it became clear that the SARS-CoV-2 virus would spread rapidly across the globe, a multitude of research organizations and biotech companies scrambled to develop diagnostic tests where accuracy and speed were important factors. In the U.S., the FDA granted emergency use authorization to many test developers because simply we did not have the time to go through the normal trials that are required for FDA approval. Chris is one of many scientists in the community who shifted his priorities in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. He developed a new rapid assay and also used NGS-based analysis in his efforts. A paper from his efforts, which we refer to in the interview, can be found linked in the website for the podcast. Let's talk with Chris about his efforts in the COVID-19 pandemic. So welcome to Christopher Mason. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. So you have a very broad experience in biology, including a wide variety of methods in your research. And today we're interested in talking about your efforts in surveillance and monitoring for SARS-CoV-2. Could you start us off with a little bit of your background leading up to where you were earlier this year in position to jump right into the fray when the pandemic broke out? Yeah, happy to. So we were, uh, you know, my lab was just going along as normal in New York City when the pandemic hit really hard. You know, New York was pretty bad. It was in, in February and March and then really early April, suddenly we were getting it. So uh, sirens were constantly ringing. It was the first time in my life where I would hear three, four or five sirens at the same time, like in surround sound. Uh, We're not that close to a hospital. It's just that there were so many cases really spiking. So it was really uh, kind of a a scary time, you know, unquestionably. And of course the schools closed down, but we, you know, began doing a lot of the sequencing of patient samples coming in and helping with some of the diagnostics efforts and really doing everything we could to just help with the pandemic. So this involved setting up, you know, some of the uh, methods for PCR testing, which were pretty straightforward at the time, but then also doing a lot of really deep RNA sequencing to fully characterize the patient samples 
to look at co-infection rates, to better understand the virus, looking at autopsy samples. So uh, we jumped right in as fast as we could. Hey, Chris, you have a paper where you describe a rapid colorimetric test that you develop, which can detect SARS-CoV-2 in less than an hour. Uh, mm-hmm. In the paper, you also describe how you can use NGS-based for RNA analysis. And when you look at that, one of these assays is very fast, while the other takes longer, but gives you way more uh, valuable information. Our question to you is, like, is this sequencing assay that you're using in your lab solely for research purposes, or does it also play a role in surveillance during the pandemic? The fast one is called uh, LAMP, which is a loop-mediated isothermal amplification. And uh, this is a protocol that really targets any nucleic acid, such as DNA or RNA, with six primers instead of two, and then quickly amplifies that target and makes these large loops, hence the name for loop amplification. Also, it's isothermal. It runs at the same temperature because of what's called, uh, you can have a warm start reverse transcriptase that makes RNA into cDNA, and then a strand-displacing DNA polymerase means even if it's uh, the enzyme's trying to get through, it can quickly displace the complementary strand and keep amplifying that target. So it works really quickly because every time the polymerase incorporates a base, it releases one proton, and the pH of the solution uh, drops really quickly. So suddenly you can have a pink solution that suddenly appears uh, quite yellow. And so we were very excited to get this up and running and validated, and it gave us a way to do a 20 or 30 minute test. The shotgun transcriptome sequencing, which is the RNA sequencing, uh, does take longer. It's a, you know, on the order of several days, um, but it is far, far more informative because we get the real panoply of all the variations of organisms and RNAs in a sample. So this is, of course, viral RNA. We can sequence the virus, understand its evolution, look at sort of where we should design primers, help with vaccine development in terms of which of the fragments of the of the virus are more, um, more basically the most conserved, uh, which also helps with diagnostic uh, testing methods and primer design. But then also we can look at the universe of other RNAs. And so this includes, you know, host RNA, what genes are expressed in the host cells as they get infected. So we could see interferon response. We could even see olfactory receptors become down-regulated. So this is partly what underlies, we think, how people lost their sense of smell and taste. Uh, you can see that in the host response in the RNA data. And of course, we can get bacteria and, and fungal and it really any RNA that's present. You get a real uh, broad view of the biology. How do you decide when to do the rapid assay versus the more informative but slower sequencing-based assay? Yeah, we've, we've deployed both in many cases. And actually, the paper we have that's online as a preprint and just got accepted uh, a couple of days ago is, uh, you know, basically, we do, both, we do them for every sample as much as we can. We'll do both because you want to quickly see what is in the sample. Is it positive or negative? But then also get a much more in-depth profile with the full sequencing assay. Uh, and so if I could, I would sequence everything all the time and do it fast. And, and we're working on that as well. How do we get the informatics to be faster, the library prep to be uh, more rapid? How do we get sequencing to become more like, uh, you know, faster lamp type tests? We read that uh, you took a the lamp assay and went to help set up testing in the town where you grew up in Wisconsin. And then, of course, you live in New York City where you've done most of your work. So can you comment on what you learned from implementing frontline testing in a small town in Wisconsin and then applying this idea to a much bigger, denser population, which was also one of the worst hit areas? I've learned that people really don't want to wait uh, more than they have to for any results because it is a torturous experience if you're sick and you don't know what's causing your sickness. Uh, or even if you just suspect you're sick, if you think you've been exposed and you're worried that you're a carrier, you know. Every minute that passes is a little bit painful for the people waiting for the results. 
So uh, we, but I also learned that, you know, so I learned that speed is, is key, but also learned that we can train anybody to do some of these tests, to do pipetting, to do the lamp reaction. We, you know, brought basically kits in that were, you know, basically got some standard pipettes, got some uh, NEB kits that were there to do the, the full assay, and then basically trained firefighters and first responders to say, here's how you hold a pipette, here's how you run essentially a heater, here's how you interpret the reaction. And then also got them familiar with fluorimeters and pipettes and enzymes and sort of cold chain storage. They were great, actually. That was one of the goals of our study there was to see, can we get, uh, can we democratize access to some of the testing technology? Because not every city in the country has a CLIA lab or a high complexity lab or a university, but almost everyone, of course, has a fire department, a police department. So that was uh, something we demonstrated quite well in that study. And then we also deployed this with, across New York City. We did it at New York Presbyterian. Uh, and now we're at pretty good at capacity. But for a little while, we needed any molecular method we could get our hands on to do testing. Uh, and so that helped with really, I think, the bottleneck and the timing. And this led to, you know, several uh, groups now have FDA EUA authorization to be running uh, RT LAMP, this version of the test, uh, at multiple commercial sites and also running it uh, in New York City. Chris, I would like to explore a little bit more on the answer that you just gave us. So in trying to democratize this assay, what would you say were the biggest barriers that you found? Was it uh, training of the frontline personnel? Was it access to materials? What what was the one thing that you think we should take and, and try to use to continue democratizing genomics-based assays or molecular biology-based assays? in the general population? Yeah, it's a great question. I actually think that, you know, the training, it does take a day or two to get people who've never held a pipette, who don't have intimate biology of biochemistry or enzymology, or even just proper lab techniques. They do need training, but I found that people are really uh, very trainable, right? So I think what's interesting is that, and so I think that's the, not the hardest thing. The hardest thing was actually just uh, supplies for a little while. We just couldn't get tips. This is still a problem today. It's just like, um, you know, filter tips are almost like gold. I've seen people trade their youngest child for filter tips almost. <laughs> you know, it's really, uh, they're hard to come by. So I actually think the supply chain nationally and internationally has been far more of a headache for us than getting people some training. And, and people, you know, are, you know, pipetting is not that, not that hard, right? Kate Rubens is an astronaut right now. She was emailing me yesterday. She's on the space station. And she's trying to get 96 well plates working and, you know, in zero gravity. And she, if she can do it there, I feel like anyone could do it at a fire station. So I think I've really become impressed with, I think, the trainability of people. And, and again, the FDA really wants to shoot for something as easy as a pregnancy test, where you just have to pee on a strip and you look at it and it is only that easy. But I think, you know, you know there is a greater risk the more complex you make a home-based test. But there's also a greater, you know, I think, power in enabling people to have, have on and act on information about their own health that is, is worth a little bit of complexity and give people a little bit of the benefit of the doubt for their trainability. Yeah, so the lamp assay uh, precision with the pipetting isn't that key because it's kind of a plus yeah. or negative answer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's another important distinction. It's not a quantitative test. So you can say, okay, yes or no, and then you're done in 30 minutes. And and the good thing about it is if you're not sure, you can take it again, right? You can then you know again in 30 minutes, right? So um, and that's what a lot of people do with pregnancy tests, right? If they're like, um, if you really want to be pregnant, you're just done after one. But if you really don't want to be, oftentimes you'll take two or three, you know, before you really decide. Well, I'd imagine when the testing first started, we didn't have anything to begin with. And so there was just a race, like everyone just jumped into the fray to, to put out tests and there were emergency use authorizations because we needed to have something. And I think there were a lot of uh, tests that were giving false positive or false negatives, so I imagine even now today, even though probably a lot of it's standardized, correct me if I'm wrong about that, 
but I imagine a lot of people want to get a, a secondary assay anyway. I mean, the RT-PCR is still really a gold standard that doesn't usually require it. But I think for a lot of things like antigen tests uh, or home collection tests, people often want to get a result and then want to maybe validate it again later. So I, we have seen that. And the other good thing we've seen is people moving away from the nasopharyngeal swab. Uh, which is what I like to refer to as a cranial colonoscopy. It's really hard to get the sample, and it's really unpleasant. And, you know, getting to uh, anterior nares collection or saliva collection, the protocol from Yale called Saliva Direct that we've also been using with Ann Wiley has been really wildly successful for the NBA teams, keeping them safe, and they just do saliva testing. So, you know, we've learned that, you know, the, the tropism of every virus is different, the tropism being where the virus goes in the body and how it is distributed in different cell types. We're lucky that SARS-CoV-2 does seem to be pretty present in saliva. Uh, that's not so much the case for other respiratory viruses, uh, but but uh, we're looking more at that because we've actually found after sequencing a lot of different patient samples, there's a lot more respiratory viruses we can pick up in saliva than we thought before. So I think it's opened up the floodgates for better tracking, better monitoring, better technologies, and looking at areas of the body to see if you can get an easier collection like saliva and doing it in more places. Thanks for developing that for us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, thank, and it was just uh, just by ourselves. It was a lot of commercial partners who helped um, tinker with it, develop it, uh, get it up in Clea Labs. We put it in our Clea Lab back in March. But you know, now it's running in four different labs. Most of the testing in San Francisco is being done with LAMP. Um, a lot of the testing uh, in the Midwest and also in the New York City is by RT LAMP. Um, there's the at-home tests that now are running it. So it's really uh, expanded. So it's been really a lot of fun. In your paper, you described the identification of a new clad of SARS-CoV-2 in New York. Uh, you also showed evidence of the route through which it entered the U.S. But could you explain to us what is the significance of knowing how and when and where the virus is evolving and how is it changing? Yeah, we, the good thing about sequencing the virus is you can calculate all the genetic drift, the variation, uh, any sort of strange rearrangements. What's important about it is that if you know where the virus is not changing and not evolving, and we're seeing right now it's about two mutations per genome per month, so it's a pretty slowly evolving virus, but everything evolves that's a, that's a, alive or in living systems, so it does change uh, and will continue to change, but the sequencing lets us discern what is it most similar to, so what does it look like it came from, and we inferred most of the samples look like they came from Europe, uh, which matches data from NYU and Mount Sinai, which we showed in the paper and, and so we're, you can actually, and we've even sequenced hospital rooms and walls. And what you can do is if a patient comes into the room, if you don't know their travel history, because they might be intubated, you can just sequence the virus and get a, an idea of where they possibly came from and where maybe they came from. Uh, you know, it's an inference, so it's not perfect, but, you know, the ability to look at phylogenetic and geospatial differences of these strains and clades uh, helps you discern where they came from, where they might be going and also, you want to design all your primers and probes and a lot of your vaccine development on the areas of the genome that are the most stable, so it'll be reliable for the longest. Yes. Yeah, so speaking of vaccine development, you know, I'm curious how this works in parallel with the flu vaccine, which is obviously updated every year because it has a high mutation rate. And as you just said, the mutation rate of SARS-CoV-2 is slower, but it also continues to spread throughout the year. So what are your thoughts on the role of genomic monitoring of viral evolution as it pertains to the vaccines that are coming out this year and beyond? It's, it's essential. I mean, this is basically, you know, the, the as, as the Earth wobbles back and forth on its axis, as it moves around the sun, we get sort of views of, per hemisphere of what the virus looks like in the southern hemisphere. We learn from that and then apply that to the northern hemisphere and continue this, you know, WHO-guided gu tracking of the virus. 
And I, and I think, you know, sequencing used to be very complex and difficult, but now it's so routine. I'm really excited because I think this opened up some floodgates that the pandemic did of instead of just doing it from patient samples, we can also get this information relatively unbiased from sewage, for example, or hospital su- hospital sewage, as well as city sewage. And we can even see it on the walls of hospital rooms that we've published. You know, so it's really interesting that we can get a really broad view of viral evolution and, and be much more exacting about how we develop these vaccines, um, which could help for sure for, for flu, but uh, for really any respiratory pathogen or virus. Chris, can we move a little bit of what is going on where, where you are right now in, in, in New York? So what is the current state of testing in your area? Who has access to the testing? Is it being limited still to symptomatic people? Can uh, asymptomatic carriers be monitored and tested as well? Yeah, so it's gotten really uh, broad accessibility. New York Presbyterian, we just uh, had an emergency call this morning and the vaccine distributions just started. The testing levels are now in the range of seven or 8,000 tests a day. Most of the city MD sites around New York City have a lot of testing. There's still there's still lines outside a lot of the places for testing because we can do symptomatic and asymptomatic and some people just want to get tested before they maybe travel or they have, think they were exposed. So, you know, we're still having a few delays, but the turnaround time for testing is usually one or two days instead of the seven or eight days we saw months ago. Uh, so it's actually we're going pretty well. And, and even vaccine deployment has just started uh, literally this morning at the hospital. And it's really you know exciting to see how fast, you know, within a year, a virus that we didn't know existed a year ago. We now have a vaccine being deployed, uh, you know, today. Uh, so it's really extraordinary time. And testing has gotten, has gotten better and, and more, more reliable and accessible. That's awesome. Can I ask you one follow-on question to to the testing? And did you get any pushback from patients or users on doing sequencing testing? Or how was the acceptance of the community of using sequencing for a test versus the lamp-based assay, for example? Most people don't know the distinction. You know, they, they just say, do they just want to know am I positive or negative, you know? And so I think um, people who think a little bit about it or read about it get excited about knowing the genetics of the virus and actually thinking about the sequence variation, the impact it has on the, the different cell types around the body. Uh, so, you know, but I think most people don't know the distinction, but those who learn about it get really excited to say, oh, we can, we can map the genetic code very, you know, base by base by base. We can understand exactly how the host cells respond and what the immune system is doing. And so, you know, I think people get pretty excited when the more they learn. So, Given the cost of the existing limitations on infrastructure, um, how do you see testing playing a role in the future? I mean, there's managing of cases, there's containing the virus, or there's even the possibility of eradicating the virus of uh, SARS-CoV-2 going forward. So how much would testing actually need to be ramped up in order to accomplish the, you know, fully containing? I mean, I, I think it's, you know, for example, this morning, as of yesterday, we did 2.2 million tests in the United States just yesterday. So we are now reaching the stage where tracking the active number of cases is getting possible uh, with the capacity that we have, right? So I think what's exciting about this is the centralized infrastructure is there, but what really needs to be deployed to make it even better is more distributed infrastructure. Uh, example would be like for, you know, think about it, like 60, 70 years ago, people would get the ice delivered to their house because no one had freezers, right? But now we all have freezers. And so I think... I think eventually molecular diagnostics and monitoring will start to become in that vein where you wouldn't necessarily use it as a diagnostic. So I see some evidence of a virus. I should go get confirmed testing or there's plenty of kits and companies now where you can order the test at home, deliver it, you know, get it, take a sample, send it back. But I really think the future belongs to making it even more convenient doing testing at home. Really, like we talked about a little bit before is democratizing access to this information. So that's the last thing we need, I think, to make it so we really have a truly global 
testing and tracing network. That's great. And maybe we can move on to the to the next point, which is related to democratization and the global nature of this pandemic. So in order for the pandemic to be controlled or eradicated, we will have to take action globally, most likely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you think that it would be economically and practically or even politically feasible to execute it at that level? Um, what advantages would we gain from doing this? literally at the global level, and what are some of the top issues that we will have to solve in order to be able to have a, a worldwide response to this? Yeah, I think some, some people have really begun to do data sharing in a way that's enabled the most unprecedented collaborative exchange of information in human history, probably, uh, is is that, you know, people immediately sequence their viruses, put them online, people could learn from those sequences uh, you know, so I think politically people did it across all countries and just shared their data as fast as they could, including between China and the U.S., which are currently uh, often at odds. But, you know, really, most scientists really come together quickly. And I think economically, it used to be viewed as too expensive to do surveillance and continuing testing and sequencing. But now there's, you know, billions of dollars being poured into it because instead of losing hundreds of billions of dollars, what if we spent, you know, uh, five or six billion dollars on surveillance uh, per year? It would, it would certainly be worth it. So I think uh, things that used to be deemed uh, unfeasible or too expensive, I think, have really uh, been you know, re-examined in the light of what we lost when we weren't prepared. So I, I think we'll be able to nip things in the butt faster, find outbreaks faster, and also develop vaccines faster, all because of the work uh, that's been done in the past year. I imagine at the end of this year, there'd be a lot of quantitative assessment of the economic loss, yeah. at yeah. least in our country, that we've sustained as a result of not being yeah. uh, being able to respond. Like So on that note, like based on what you've learned from this current crisis, what do you think can be done to prevent a similar outbreak and such severity from the next emerging pathogen? I, I think there's, you know, more sequencing embedded into civil infrastructure. So sewage, for example, uh, hospitals, you know, being well equipped for the sequencing, uh, because instead of guessing at what an infection is, which you can design primers and figure it out later, the sequencing of it tells you very quickly all the fragments uh, of any organism, if it's known or unknown, if it's unknown, you can start to see what it's similar to. And so I, I think there's going to be a broader push to to share that data and in, embed this kind of genetics infrastructure as part of, uh, you know, civilian defense, if you will, and civilian monitoring. We, we think of, like, for example, looking up the weather, it could be similar in this regards for genetic sequence information. Or, you know, we think of you monitor the water of a city or the air, you'd want to monitor the genetics of a city as well. And so I think this will begin to become, since it's cheap enough now, it actually will start to manifest uh, as part of city and country planning. Awesome. Thank you, Chris. What excites you about genomics and where do you see it playing a role in the next five years? I think uh, everything excites me about genome, excites me about genomics because I'm a, a dorky geneticist. So, of course, I love uh, any nucleic acid of any kind that we can trace, monitor, engineer, and, you know, implant in some other organism, learn from it, model it, adapt it, and design it again. So, I, I think um, these, you know, I think we're really at this amazing stage of reading and writing uh, DNA and RNA, but soon I think we will, um, you know, be, I, I think what's really interesting is to start to be able to see new uh, fragments of DNA or RNA and predict more about their function. You know, when we first got this coronavirus in our hands, we had to do a lot of guesswork as to what would be the best place to design it or target it. And that took a matter of months, but maybe we give that down to a matter of days uh, or less, you know, right? so that we could be so predictive about our knowledge of genetics, we can really make vaccines even faster um, or, you know, do things in space. I, of course, am interested about doing 
Uh, and we're currently doing you know, some uh, sequencing in space or doing a thing about how you engineer microbes so they could survive on Mars and help people grow crops there. So there's all kinds of things coming uh, that are you know helping better cancer therapies to helping astronauts in space. And so I, I'm excited about all of it, I guess. This has been a really good conversation. Thank you very much for joining us. And also, thank you very much for all the efforts you've been doing on the front line. My pleasure. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. Thank you all so right. much, Chris. Thank you for joining us today. If you like today's show, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are found. We'll talk to you next time at the Illumina Genomics Podcast.